But well, we're continuing in our series in Revelation this morning. And for those of you who uh, are joining us maybe for the first time today or maybe haven't been in a while, basically you're jumping in in the middle of a movie, so to speak. So if you walk into a room where there are already people watching a movie and you've never seen it before, sometimes you may not have the foggiest idea what's going on and it'll take you a little while to understand. If that's you and uh, you're a little bit at a loss for where we are in Revelation chapter 10, that's very understandable. Thankfully, we have our sermons available online on our website at crbcbarbados.com and we've gone all the way from chapter 1 and verse 1 up to where we are in Revelation chapter 10. So if you're a little bit lost today, don't worry about that, it's no problem. You could always go back and catch up uh, and uh, Eventually, if you start watching a movie that other people have already started, even if you don't go back and watch the beginning, eventually you usually put two and two together and you have, you're able to piece together some idea of what's going on. So just be aware that we're in Revelation 10 and there's a lot of stuff that you may have missed and it might be a little difficult to understand, but that's, that's no problem. We are in Revelation 10, of course, this morning, the chapter that I just read for you. And we're in the midst of the seven trumpets cycle of visions. So Revelation starts with the Apostle John exiled on the island of Patmos. And he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus dictates letters for him to write to the first century churches. Then there's a vision of the heavenly throne room. Then there's a vision of seven seals that are broken to open a scroll. And then after that, there is a vision of seven trumpets which sound. And that's where we are in the book by way of very brief and very surface level review. And this morning we're beginning to look at the interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Just as there was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal in the first cycle of visions, so there is an interlude here between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet in this second cycle of visions. And this interlude goes all the way from chapter 10 and verse 1 into chapter 11, all the way to chapter 11 and verse 14. But we're only looking at chapter 10 this morning, since there's some complex stuff in chapter 11, and it would be too much to try to fit all into one sermon, I think, this morning. So let's begin looking at the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets this morning. And basically what we have here, which I just read for you in Revelation chapter 10, is a vision of an angel with a scroll that the Apostle John is commanded to eat, and then John is commanded subsequently to prophesy. That's pretty much what happens in this chapter. However, in the midst of this vision is a statement about seven thunders, which seems like a digression. Revelation 10, verses 3 and 4 says, When the angel called out, the seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, of course, because John didn't write it down, we really have no idea whatsoever what the seven thunders said. However, the seven thunders still play an important role in this vision. 
The very mention of the seven thunders indicate to us that there are indeed secret things known only to God which are not revealed at large to mankind. I mean, obviously we know John heard what the seven thunders said, but he didn't write it down, so it's not revealed to us. The very mention of the seven thunders indicates that there are indeed secret things which are known to God, but not revealed to mankind. We don't know everything God knows. And in fact, even if we were the most thorough and accurate interpreters of the Bible, we still wouldn't know everything that God knows. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We ought to recognize that God does not answer all of our curiosities in His Word. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish that John had written down the, what the seven thunders had said. Well, I mean, not that he would disobey God, but I don't wish that. But I wish maybe that God didn't say, don't write that down. It would be interesting to know. But the reality is that God does not answer all our curiosities in His Word. He doesn't tell us everything that we wish He would. How many times did you want to understand something even in your own life? You pray to God, what's going on here? And heaven is silent as it were. And you don't understand what God is doing, what God is up to in your life. God does not answer all of our curiosities. He doesn't tell us everything that we wish He would. What did the thunders say? We just don't know. There are secret things known only to God, but not revealed to mankind. Does this scare you? Or make you feel uncomfortable? It shouldn't. But I know from conversations I've had with people in the past that sometimes it does. That the unknown is scary. That it's, it, you feel like when you don't understand what's going on in your life, when you don't understand what's going on in the world, it can feel scary. When you don't understand why God is doing what He's doing, it can feel scary. And you feel even more out of control than you do when you do understand. I mean, even if you understand, really, if you view yourself rightly, you still got to know you're not in control. Right? But especially when you don't understand, it really drives home the message to your heart that you are not in control. And that can feel scary. But it need not scare you or make you feel uncomfortable that there are things... Secret things known only to God, but not known to mankind. It need not scare you because we are in good hands. Though we may not know everything and therefore cannot even begin to think we can control and manage everything, though we may not know everything and cannot control everything, there is someone who sees and knows and can and does. As we continue to look at this section of scripture here in Revelation chapter 10, we can see that the vision of the angel assures us of God's sovereignty. Look at the language used to describe the angel here. These are images associated with God in the book of Revelation. First, there is the cloud. Look at Revelation 10.1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, 
wrapped in a cloud. From the cloud that led the people in the wilderness after the exodus, to the glory cloud at Sinai, and later in the tabernacle and the temple, to the statement in Acts that Jesus will return on the clouds, to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, which says that Jesus is coming with the clouds. This is an image which regularly and repeatedly attaches itself to and signifies the appearance of a divine being, both in the Bible at large and within the book of Revelation. Next, there is a rainbow over his head, Revelation 10.1. Where else have we seen a rainbow in Revelation? Chapter 4 and verse 3. Around the throne of God, there was a rainbow. If we go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, which is uh, important to the context of this passage, as we'll see later, the early chapters of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a vision of God, and it says... Above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were a gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And obviously we think about the origin of the rainbow way back in Genesis. All the way, all the way through scripture, the rainbow here is also connected with divinity. And the angel calls out like a lion roaring, Revelation 10.3. Where else have we seen a lion in Revelation? Chapter 5, verse 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So there is at least reasonable and plausible textual basis to take this angel as an appearance of the divine being. And by theological necessity then, a vision of the divine son, specifically. But against this view, there are four primary objections. First, he's called an angel as opposed to being explicitly identified as the divine son. Second, he appears not in human form, and we know that the resurrected Christ has a human body. Third, he swears by God, and some people say that it doesn't make sense that God would swear by himself. And fourth, he is called another mighty angel. And in Revelation 5.2, there is a non-divine angel, distinct from the Son of God, who is called a mighty angel, and who cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. However, none of these objections are conclusive. With respect to the first objection, which is that he's called an angel, as opposed to being explicitly identified as the divine Son, it's not with no precedent in Scripture that Jesus would be called an angel or a messenger, which is what angel means, messenger. There is the angel of the Lord throughout the whole Old Testament who regularly receives worship and speaks in the first person on behalf of the Lord. 
most theologians agree that this angel in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate Son of God. And in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, we read about Jesus that, quote, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there is biblical precedent for the image and language of Jesus as an angel or a messenger, though, catch this, strictly speaking, he is not an angelic being, but he is God himself, the divine son. With respect to the second objection, that he appears here not in human form, and we know that the resurrected Jesus has a human body, well, that's asking more of the imagery of Revelation 10 than we ask of the rest of the book. For example, in Revelation chapter 5, when it says, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. Right after that, we read this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Well, I don't think anyone would dispute in Revelation 5 that we're talking about Jesus, but he appears in the imagery of Revelation 5 as a lamb with seven horns and with seven eyes, which he is not literally either. So even though Jesus is quite literally in a human body, resurrected and united to mankind forevermore by virtue of his incarnation, it's, it's regular and common in Revelation to see Jesus appear symbolically in various forms. So the fact that he doesn't appear in human form here in 10, if that's in fact what the way we ought to take it, is not a strong objection. With respect to the third objection, which is that he swears by God, this angel swears by God. And some people say that it doesn't make sense that God would swear by himself. We should know that we are told explicitly in the scripture that swearing by himself is actually exactly what God does, since there is no one higher to swear by. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And let's consider now the fourth objection to seeing this angel as the divine son. The fourth objection is that the angel in Revelation 10 is called another mighty angel. And in Revelation 5.2, there is a non-divine angel, distinct from the Son of God, called a mighty angel, who cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? This is, in my opinion, perhaps the strongest argument against the angel in chapter 10 being divine, for the reason that I shared with you a number of weeks ago as a hermeneutical principle or an interpretive principle in Revelation, that we ought to apply the same language and the same images to the same referent in Revelation, unless we have compelling textual evidence to do otherwise. So if there is a certain symbol in Revelation 2, which appears again in 11 or 17, Unless we have compelling reason to take it as indicating something else than it indicated in the first place, we should take it as that again. 
So the question is, do we have enough textual evidence to interpret the language of a mighty angel in chapter 10 as being another being, as opposed to the same being as the angel referred to, the mighty angel referred to in chapter 5? And in support of it being another being is, well, the word another. After all, the angel in chapter 10 is called another mighty angel, which tells us explicitly that, that it's actually not the same being as it was in 5. Secondly, in view of all the language and imagery in chapter 10, which is typically used to signify a divine person, some think that there is, in fact, enough textual evidence here to take this angel in chapter 10 as not being not only the same angel that was there in chapter 5, but, but really no angel, strictly speaking at all, no angelic being, but we should take this as a, a messenger and take this as being the divine son. Now, after considering all these things, theologians are nevertheless divided as to whether this angel is divine or whether the angel is truly just an angel. But whether we take this as the divine messenger or not, he is clearly either divine himself or he is operating on divine authority. He is clearly God's servant in this passage, as opposed to being a demonic figure or another sort of being in opposition to God. He's on God's team, at least. And therefore, the significance of the symbolism is actually going to be the same in this case, either way, however you take it. So today, I'm not going to force you to make a choice. All right, let me show you what I mean. First, we see that he puts his feet on the land and the sea, which is an intuitive symbol of sovereignty or possession or victory. Biblically, we see, for example, in Joshua 10, verses 24 to 26, that Joshua commands the chiefs of the people to put your feet on the necks of these kings whom they had conquered. Moreover, the statement in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 3 corroborates this kind of symbolism. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given you. And the statement in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 5, that God will not give the Israelites any of the Edomite land, quote, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, end quote. These things show us that the imagery of placing your feet somewhere or on top of something signifies a right to be there at the very least, but in symbolic language would symbolize something further, victory or possession or sovereignty. For example, who among us would not take it as an insult to be drawn into a cartoon on a newspaper page with somebody's foot upon you? Even if there was no caption, even if there was no explanation, you would take it that way. We understand that. And you think about turf wars among gangs, right? And just putting your foot in the wrong street or whatever can end in problems. Because the implication is, this is not your ground. This is not your turf. You have no right to be there. We own this. 
you don't own this. So this is, this is intuitive language here. So what we see amidst the visions of demons overrunning the earth, which in chapter 9 we read about in the 5th and the 6th trumpets, amidst the visions of demons overrunning the earth, we see either God or God's emissary, depending on how you take the angel. We see here either the divine son or somebody with the signet ring of the divine son, as it were. Somebody with identification as an ambassador of the divine son. Somebody with wearing the, the, the flag of heaven, as it were. You see either here the divine son or an emissary of the divine son, depending on how you take the angel. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. The image here is of a conquering lion. The image here is, hey, this is my turf. The image here is, I'm in charge where I put my feet. This is my ground. This land is mine. This sea, it's mine. And in case anybody wants to contest me, well, let me roar and show you my strength, right? Whether this is personally Jesus, the Lion of Judah, or his representative, the imagery is essentially the same here. Whether Jesus goes himself or sends someone else to make this claim, it is a claim being made that this is Christ's territory. This imagery alone is a reassuring indicator that though we don't always know what's going on, Though we don't always understand things, and though we are not in control, and though demons may be running amok as they were released upon the earth in the fifth and sixth trumpets, all things are not out of control. Just because we're not in control doesn't mean they're out of control. All things are not chaotic and impossible to be understood. Though we may not understand, there is one who does understand. God understands and superintends everything according to His sovereign purposes, bringing about what He intends through history, even when the demons are running away. And on top of this, there is the statement of the angel in Revelation 10, 6 and 7, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. This explicitly reassures us that everything is still on track. Even after the release of demons in the fifth and sixth trumpets to, to torment the earth. You hear people say, oh, I'm afraid for kids growing up in this world. Everything's getting out of control. There's no, there's no hope for this world. There's no fixing this. Everything is too broken. And when we read chapter 9, and we read about the demons coming up from the shaft of the bottomless pit, this army of locusts and this army of horsemen, drawing on the Old Testament imagery of armies of locusts and armies of horsemen coming against the people of Israel and in coming against the people of Egypt in their respective places and so on and so forth. These destructive forces. When we read about these demonic hordes in chapter 9, we might have that same feeling. What hope is there after the fifth and sixth trumpet? After these locusts have been let out of the pit? The toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. There's no putting it back in. After these demons have been let out, the earth is, is lost. 
There is no hope at all. But then the interlude comes. And a lion puts his feet on the land and the sea and roars and says, when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. After a couple of particularly terrifying visions connected with the fifth and sixth trumpets, signifying demons being given some liberty, it's comforting to remember that God is in control even over this. He is sovereign over the land and the sea. All creation, in other words, this is shorthand for all creation, corroborated by chapter 10 and verse 5. And, a, and the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. The picture here is of the creator. It's still his land. It's still his sea. The lion still roars. No one has conquered him. Though he has been crucified, he has risen. And the lion still roars. And it's still his land. And it's still his sea. And it's comforting to see this imagery here, this interlude, after the demons run amok in the fifth and the sixth trumpets. Revelation describes conflict between heaven and hell, as it were, between God and Satan. But Revelation regularly reassures us in various ways, in various images, that it is not a battle of equals. God and Satan are not dualistic opposites who balance each other out in equally good and an equally bad force. But rather, it is the case, and the trumpet's cycle shows us, it is the case that God uses Satan as a mere pawn in his strategy to bring all things to their intended end. Who was it who gave the key to the bottomless pit in the fifth trumpet? It was God who gave the key. And where does the key end up at the end of all things? Back in God's hands. Revelation chapter 20. We'll get there eventually. Listen, the key is on loan. Alright, it is God who grants that the demons run amok in the fifth and sixth trumpets, and he is using them as subservient beings to fulfill his purpose, but he is still sovereign. He is still Lord of the land and sea, and he will bring everything to its intended end. So our first point then is that though we may not know everything and cannot control everything, there is someone who can and does. Though there are things secret to us, and we may not understand all that God is doing, we are reassured by Revelation chapter 10 that nevertheless, He is still sovereign and will bring all things to their intended end. And this leads us naturally to our second point, which is that the scroll con concerns peoples, nations, languages, and kings, and the mystery of God, which is what makes it both sweet and bitter. Let me explain what I mean. And to understand the image of the bittersweet scroll, we have to go back to Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, all the way through to... Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 3. 
in which Ezekiel is commanded in Ezekiel 2.8, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. What is the result of Ezekiel eating it? I ate it, he says, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. But later in Ezekiel 3, we read God saying to Ezekiel, The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears, and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. After hearing this, Ezekiel leaves the scene in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. Why? Because he has been given words of lamentation and mourning and woe to speak to a people who will not be willing to listen. What is going on in Revelation 10? We are still in the midst of a cycle of judgment in which God is not so much saving and redeeming. I say so much because it's not an issue of entirely saving or entirely not saving, but what is being emphasized in the vision. God is not so much saving and redeeming this cycle of trumpets, but is manifesting His wrath or emphasizing the manifestation of His wrath against the unbelief of the earth. John is told to eat a scroll concerning well, implicitly concerning peoples and nations and languages and kings and the mystery of God. Those are the things that the angel is talking to him about. Those are the things that he is commanded to prophesy about. And so since the scroll in Ezekiel's day contained the message that he was to receive in his heart and to hear and to speak, it stands to reason that the scroll that John is to eat is what he is to receive in his heart and to hear and to speak, which is the subject of what the angel is talking to him about. Languages and nations and kings and the mystery of God. As, and as Dennis Johnson puts it, the effect of eating the book is that it is sweet because it contains God's own life-giving words in which the prophet will briefly delight. The bitterness comes from the scroll's purpose, which is to announce judgment and its effect in terms of the rebellious response of the people. Ezekiel was warned in advance that except for a remnant who will respond and repent, those who would listen were a rebellious people and would not respond. Therefore, his message is primarily one of judgment. 
So the mystery of God is, to use the words of, Rev of Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. This is the mystery of God. And this mystery is at once sweet and bitter. For it contains the plan to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth unto God in Christ Jesus. To put all things under Jesus' feet. To bring all of his enemies into submission. To pour out his wrath upon the unrepentant. And to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And to rescue his people. Where we will live with him forever in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, to me that's a sweet message. For all of his people who have trusted in him and who have been saved from his wrath by grace through faith in him. This is a sweet message. Listen, we trusted in Jesus. They killed him, but he rose. He's defeated death and sin and hell and the demands of the law have no claim upon us anymore for Jesus has fulfilled the demands on our behalf. The righteousness that God requires is ours in Christ Jesus. The penalty that God requires to be poured out upon those who break his law has already been poured out upon Jesus. So Jesus rose and with him we will rise. Hell did its worst and Jesus conquered. He is risen. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. And though hell will do its worst on offense, they will not prevail against Jesus. And though hell will do its best on defense, the gates of hell will not prevail. And Christ will build his church. And in the end, when all things are said and done, and in the various ways that it's put to us in Revelation, when all of the, the battles are over, Listen, we're not going to live in a world full of demonic locusts. We're not going to live in a world full of demonic horsemen. We're going to live in a world that has been cleansed of these things. Right? Everything will be fixed. Everything will be alright. This is sweet to receive and to hear. To eat this. To receive it in our hearts and to hear it is sweet. But for others, it's a bitter message. What if you're not on Jesus' team? And what if you don't want to be on Jesus' team? What if, for example, you're, you're one of the demons that came up out of the shaft of the bottomless pit? Is it, is it wonderful to hear about the mystery of God? Sweet to hear about Satan being crushed under his feet? What about if you are one who, whose mind has been blinded by the God of this world, as in 2 Corinthians 4? What if you're one who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness? What if you're one who glories in his shame? What if you're one who has exchanged the truth of God for a lie? What if you're one who worships the creature rather than the creator? What if, what if you're one who believes in utter and absolute autonomy and that no one, even God, has any right to tell you what to do? What if you don't believe you're a sinner and that such talk is primitive and backwards and outdated? 
is this message about the mystery of God, the gospel of Christ, that we may be forgiven for our sins and enabled to turn from them and to repent and to walk in newness of life? And that only those who so do will live with Him forever in new heavens and new earth and the rest will be cast into the lake of fire? Is this a sweet message for such people? No, it's bitter. Now, what about for God's people to, to whom it is sweet with respect to ourselves and our faith? What about His people proclaiming the mystery of God in the midst of people for whom it is a bitter message? Well, that makes it somewhat bitter for us. For God's people proclaiming the mystery of God, the fate of peoples and nations and languages and kings, among peoples and languages and nations and kings who don't really want to hear it, and for whom it is a bitter message. For God's people proclaiming the mystery of God and the fate of peoples and nations and languages of kings, in the midst of an unbelieving and hostile world, it is often bitter to our spirits as it results in our suffering. Like the prophets of old, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we could add, who was, who was called the weeping prophet. He, Jeremiah even says, Lord, you deceived me. You made me give this message. Right? By implication, you wronged me for putting me in this. Right? Like the prophets of old, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, just for example, there are others. We are often likewise rejected and abused, and it leaves us, as it did Ezekiel, in bitterness and the heat of our spirits. Yet nevertheless, what is commanded of John? Eat and prophesy. In other words, receive it in your heart, as God said to Ezekiel, hear it, speak. Eat and prophesy. In the midst of the trumpets blowing all around us, we must proclaim the mystery of God. We must eat of the message concerning the mystery of God, receive it in our hearts and hear it, and then we must proclaim it. We must prophesy, which doesn't, in this particular context, mean to foretell, but to forthtell, as some people have put it. To tell forth to nations and languages and kings what is the mystery of God. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. We're to eat that and then we're to proclaim that, to foretell that. And so though the scroll is sweet in one sense, it becomes bitter in another sense at the prospect of proclaiming it in the midst of this present darkness and with the opposition of the world looming over us. Yet nevertheless, what is commanded of John is implicitly commanded of us by way of the symbolism of Revelation 10. Eat and prophesy. Yes, this world is, as Luther's hymn puts it, with devils filled. Yes, 
it threatens to undo us. Yes, people will hate and oppose us. We'll see that truth amplified in chapter 11 next week, God willing. But in it all and over it all, God is still sovereign. Remember, that was our first point today. In it all and over it all, God is still sovereign. The lion still roars, and he will bring his purposes to pass. There will be no more delay. And in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as God announced to his servants, the prophets. And in the meantime, he has sovereignly called us with sovereign prerogative. But don't think of it as mere, well, we have to do it because the sovereign God told us to do it. Think about it as the comfort of, it is the sovereign one who has commanded us to do it. So we are ultimately safe in doing it. Take it as comfort and not bare duty. He has sovereignly called us in the meantime to eat and to prophesy. As God said to Ezekiel back in Ezekiel chapter 2 then, I say to you today, be not rebellious. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Taste the sweetness of the mystery of God and embrace the bitterness associated with it in the here and now. Trusting in God who sees and knows and rules over all things and will bring all things to its intended end.